0: this episode is sponsored by BetterHelp online therapy it's fair to say that relationships can take work and none more so than the most important one you can have in your life your relationship with yourself sometimes we go out of our way to treat other people well and we'll drop anything to go and help someone we care about but ask yourself how often do we give ourselves the same treatment is this something stopping you from being the person that you want to be that's preventing you from achieving your goals or your wants, and you feel like you need some help with it. If this sounds familiar to you at all, then better help may be the solution for you, because help is something we all need at some point in our lives. What better help is is online therapy offering you video, phone or live chat sessions with a therapist. It's a service available worldwide and is much more affordable than any in-person therapy and in under 48 hours you can be matched with a licensed professional therapist best suited to help you. I've found personally that talking to a professional has helped me in my own times of need whenever I've needed it in the past, so why not give BetterHelp a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and the True Crime Enthusiast podcast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash tce that's b-e-t-t-e-r-h-e-l-p dot com slash tce Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes back to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, where each time around from my spare room in North Wales, me and my beloved black and white menace, Pixie have sought out and brought for you, what are hopefully some of those tales of true crime that you may not be aware of, you may have forgotten, you might not even believe, but hopefully you won't think, oh yeah, I heard that tale last week on bloody true crime potting shed or some other shit that pops up. You won't believe how many of these nonsense shows there are arriving each and every day, I tell you. But we keep it real here, and I feel that I can say that because after so long doing this now, I'm tried, tested, and time served on The Enthusiast. I'm as ever Paul, the creator, host, and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. The Hairy Football pixie is right here as always. And as I said in previous episodes, that's a disclaimer I always have to put in and because he likes to feel included in it all too, you know, he really does. And most importantly, you are also the wonderful enthusiasts that keep me working harder than Barry White's belt, but that I think the world of every single one of you. It's fabulous that you've joined me in the Peaks, which I thank you so much for doing so, and I do hope that as the episode has found its way you, then it's found you and yours all good, all safe, and all well. So I'm back after my Patreon episode break now then. As I said before, this will likely become a recurring theme as we go on. I'd rather devote the time to putting out a tale that I've researched and written as best that I can, rather than rush out some spouted verbatim off Wikipedia bollocks. So I'll from time to time have these breaks. It is all for the love of the show though, folks. As you hear this, the aforementioned Patreon episode, a fascinating tale from the 1950s that I've entitled Mr. Whiskers, the Butcher of Cumdy, is now out and hopefully has been devoured by Patreon supporters. It was a bit of a bastard of a want to write and research as well, it really was. And should you wish to hear it, then you can support the show very reasonably and very easily to do as well. You can just head over to Patreon and seek out the show there. It's got the same logo and everything like that. Or scratch that, because there's an ever-accessible link within the episode show notes each time around. Quicker than Rishi Sunak's wife backtracks over her income tax payments, you can be hearing the tale of Mr. Whiskers as one of the full series of unreleased bonus tales that there is available for supporters, alongside the likes of To Kill and Kill Again, An Offering to the Angels, or Strange Tales from the South, to name just a few. My thanks, as always, go out to both the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, with shout outs this time around going out to Michael O'Connor, Danny Lilly, Tyler Bathgate, Chloe Cunningham, Steve Wills, Cheryl, Kirby Raycraft, Carnal Flower, fabulous name, Anne Court and Angie Fairbanks, plus Jason Hadley, Nicola Bingham, Rosalie Jane, Kate Morse, Joe Williamson, and Joe Van Union, who have opted to annually support the show. Apologies if I pronounced anybody's name wrong there. What else can I say folks, each and every single one of you rule, really, you really do. Thank you so kindly for your support, it means the absolute world. This time around then on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, and weirdly for the third time in four episodes, it's not intentionally I must add, we find ourselves down south in the county of Surrey, this time to the large village of Cobham, a couple of stats about which are As you can guess, it's very posh. It falls in the constituency of Deputy Prime Minister Dominic Raab. It's very close to Chelsea FC's training ground, and a lot of the players live around the area. YouTuber and travel influencer Lewis Cole hails from there. Yeah, I didn't have a bloody clue who that was. As did Sir Thomas Sopwith, the founder of Sopwith Aviation. The actor who played Two-Face in The Dark Knight, Aaron Eckhart, formerly lived there and el mariachi and the voice of puss in shrek antonio banderas currently does too that was the best i could find this time around i felt i was proper scraping the barrel a bit for the stats it was here in cobham that back in the summer of 2009 events came to light that when you hear the tale you'll not only think a mind-boggling but a callous beyond belief also one of the most callous individuals you will ever come across the episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events including descriptions of injury detail that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all with that in mind please join the true crime enthusiasts for an episode i've entitled web of lies Today, 47-year-old Rebecca Jackson has long since moved on with her life since the events you'll come to hear rocked her world and is now settled in a happy family role. But as good a place for our tale to start is back in March 2007 when the then 32-year-old Rebecca desperately felt that she needed a distraction in her life to take her mind from the grief that she felt. At just 18 years of age in 1993, She'd lost her chef father Walton to cancer and in November 2006 her mother Natalie, a nursery nurse, had died suddenly of a blood clot. Feeling alone and lost, as understandably you would do, and needing something to throw herself into, something drastic, something life-changing. Rebecca had bought herself a motorcycle and in February 2007 had joined a Surrey biking group like a fish out of water amongst the mainly male, hairy assed leather-clad members. Rebecca had soon made a friend there, a German-born chef named Peter Walner. They were the same age, they liked the same kind of things, he was a chef, as her father had been, and within a short time they'd become friendly and comfortable enough that Peter was soon confiding in Rebecca, opening up to her about the reserved upbringing he'd had in Germany and how he was the sole existing child of his elderly parents, following his sister having taken her own life over a decade before. In fact, it appeared quickly that tragedy never seemed to be far from Peter Walner, for he also eventually opened up to Rebecca that his wife of six years, Melanie, had died the previous August from a blood clot in her brain. She was just 30 years old. Rebecca recalled years later upon hearing this My heart immediately went out to him for I knew what it was like to lose someone so close so suddenly He said that he still found it difficult to talk about her and that he'd cried in private but couldn't show his grief in public Now the comfort, identification and empathy Rebecca felt with Peter soon became something else his gentle self-deprecating humour making her feel at ease and the cliche which she felt but recognised within herself of him being tall, dark and handsome meant that only a month after meeting when he'd asked her out on a date she had immediately accepted when one date became a second and then a third he'd asked Rebecca if they could take things slowly because in himself he was still grieving for his Melanie understanding his grief because reminders of Melny were still around Peter's home, there were photographs of her, home decorations and colours that she'd chosen, even her cashmere sweaters still hung in the wardrobe, Rebecca was careful not to push Peter into anything serious. But the relationship developed further into a physical one, and as they became ever closer, Peter told Rebecca that she was helping him to come to terms with his grief. Then. In January 2008, Rebecca discovered she was pregnant. After the initial shock, and them getting their heads around it, especially because Peter had told Rebecca that he'd previously had a vasectomy because he and Melanie hadn't wanted children, both came around to the idea, and on the surface, both seemed excited. The couple began planning how they would split the childcare duties once their baby came along, And Peter had agreed that Rebecca should move in with him, so he could best look after her through her pregnancy. Both of them excited as one another. Or so it seemed. Then, one evening in March 2008, Peter had failed to return home from work. Rebecca recalled later, he called to say that his father, Max, had suddenly died of a heart attack and that he'd flown immediately to Germany to be with his mother. I felt so desperately sorry for him. I asked him if he wanted me to fly out to support him, but he said I shouldn't in my condition. This was to be the first of many trips to Germany that Peter Walmer would make as Rebecca's pregnancy progressed further, which he would do around his busy professional life As head chef at the Woodlands Park Hotel in Stoke Dabenon, Cobham, telling Rebecca that he needed to be a presence in Germany to help look after his mother, Helga. Then, in July of that year, that tragedy that seemed to be forever in his shadow came around once again, when during one such trip, he telephoned Rebecca with the tragic news that Helga too had died of a massive sudden stroke, although he claimed. A broken heart grieving for his father. And once again, Rebecca's heart and understanding went out to the man she loved. But by this time, your spidey sense would be proper tingling, wouldn't it? Because this seems to be a guy who, if he didn't have bad luck, he wouldn't have any. And you have to start thinking could anyone really be so unlucky unless the name is Frank Spencer? Could it all indeed? Be a lie. Rebecca had never been introduced to Walner's parents, and aside from these regular trips to Germany to look after his widowed mother before her death, he himself had been a bit of a shadow from Rebecca over the previous four months, be it away in Germany or with his busy erratic shifts in work or being away on a couple of long pre arranged motorcycle trips. But if it was a complete fabrication, then it was one Peter Walner stopped at nothing to make a convincing story. Rebecca recalled, He even gave me the locations and times of their funerals. Besides, who would lie about their parents dying? Soon though, the suddenly unplanned expectant mother Rebecca grew frustrated with things, because Walner had been awake so often over the previous months and such a ghost Rebecca hadn't been able to move into his Cobham home, number 14 Hamilton Avenue. Yet, although her patience was wearing thin with him, she tried her best to understand what he was going through and accepted his behaviour grudgingly. She would even give him the space he requested to grieve whenever he asked her for it. But when she went into labour with their child in September 2008, and Rebecca tried telephoning Walnut to get him to take her to hospital, she couldn't contact him at all, despite trying literally hundreds of times. It wouldn't be an, oh well I've tried you twice, I'll just leave it now, thing that would it. When Walnut finally answered his phone to a call from her, a week after the birth of their daughter, who in his absence she decided to name Emma, I might add, He told Rebecca that the reason he'd missed her calls was because he'd been severely ill in hospital with kidney disease for the previous week, and that before he could see her or their daughter, he would need to return to the hospital for further dialysis. Rebecca said later, Alarm bells started ringing here. Afterwards, I rang every hospital in his area, and none of them had any record of him being there but I just couldn't understand why you would lie about something like this. He then went dark on her yet again, despite Rebecca trying to call him repeatedly, but several days after she'd been discharged from hospital, Rebecca spotted Walmer at a local petrol station as she was driving to a postnatal class that she was registered at in Cobham. Immediately stopping there and getting out and challenging him, And I invite you to picture the scene and how she would have been with him because you would go banzai absolutely apeshit with him, wouldn't you? Rebecca recalled, He seemed utterly taken aback to see me. He said he'd discharged himself from hospital and he even had hospital wristbands on to prove it. We agreed to meet at his house later that afternoon to sort this out. But when Rebecca arrived at Hamilton Avenue at the appointed time, Walner wasn't there. And seeing her waiting outside with her baby, a neighbour of Walner's that Rebecca knew invited her in before she then told Rebecca that she hadn't realised her and Peter were still an item. Because, somewhat awkwardly, the neighbour confessed, she'd seen him spending a lot of time with his new girlfriend i felt utterly sick and confused rebecca said and it must be a proper earth-shattering moment indeed something like that wasn't it despite trying to call him for a much-needed explanation countless times so much so that getting through to and cancelling a talk talk broadband account would be easier it was to be two weeks before she finally got hold of Walmer. A conversation during which he admitted that he'd lied to her about him being in hospital but claiming he simply hadn't wanted to hurt her and then admitted to Rebecca that he'd fallen in love with a new girlfriend a police dog trainer named Claire Trickett although he wouldn't say how long their relationship had been going on for. Now that would sting wouldn't it but a further crushing blow was about to be dealt to Rebecca when Emma was just six weeks old she was rushed to hospital with suspected meningitis when she rang Walner to tell him thinking he is her father after all he was indifferent to the news before telling Rebecca that he wanted nothing to do with her or his daughter ever again and hanging up on her and that was it Walner was gone from their lives until eight months later, in July 2009, when Rebecca received a call from Surrey Police concerning Peter Walmer, who had just been arrested upon his return from Malta, on suspicion of his wife Melanie's murder. Rebecca recalled, I was consumed with shock. It was so difficult to believe that I went to court to see him charged so it would sink in and he refused to look me in the eye. His sister's death, the hospital visits, the vasectomy, I realised that everything he'd told me had probably been a lie. So, here we have a confirmed serial liar, with some taller tales than my very dear friend, The Wham, can come out with. And we call him The Wham, as he's the world's highest authority on all matters. And being a liar is one thing, but was Peter Walner a murderer too? The story of Peter Walner begins back in 1976 when he was born in a small Bavarian town on the south of the German-Austrian border, the only child of businessman Max Walner and his wife Helga. He had a decent and loving upbringing, opting to study catering at school, and upon leaving, going to train as a chef at the prestigious Four Seasons Hotel in Munich before taking a career break of three years from this, time which he spent serving as a paramedic in the German army. When he decided to resume his career in the kitchen, he decided to head for Pastures New and do it in the UK, and so made the move across in the late 1990s, finding work at first in Apsley's restaurant at London's exclusive Lanesborough Hotel, whose head chef at the time was the internationally acclaimed German chef Heinz Beck, before moving on to the Marriott at Regent's Park. By all accounts, Walner excelled at what he did. By only his mid-twenties, he had two Michelin-starred workplaces under his belt, and, considered a rising star, his chef skills were widely admired within the trade. He had even been asked to contribute his favourite recipe to a book which contained the specialities of celebrity chefs. It was whilst working at the Marriott in 2000 that Walner met 24-year-old South African-born Melanie van der Merwe, a fellow hotel employee who had worked at various jobs in Pretoria in South Africa, including waitressing and working as an office clerk, before in 1996 coming to London, where her younger brother Petrus already lived. After taking a series of low-skilled jobs when she first arrived in the UK, she eventually found work in the catering department at the House of Commons, and it was following this that Melanie's career then moved from strength to strength. She went on from here to work in hotel banqueting, and moved through the ranks of the industry into food and beverage management. Described variously as bubbly, organised, loud, generous and loyal, Melanie was close to her parents and kept in constant contact with them back in Pretoria and they were thrilled for her when she described the Michelin-starred chef that she'd begun dating in January 2001, Peter Walmer. If her parents were a bit surprised and held any concerns about how quickly this relationship developed then they kept these to themselves for swiftly, Peter Walner had proposed to Melanie she'd accepted and by May of that year, they were married. Now, this rapid marriage, after less than a year of courtship, was partly Melanie swept off her feet, but also partly one of convenience, as Melanie didn't have a visa to stay in the UK, and being married to a foreign national would help this. And of course, you can't really get to know a person's quirks and ways and faults in such a short time, can you? which Melanie would soon find out after becoming Mrs Walner. Beginning only shortly after her marriage, she was often on the telephone to her mother, Jean Usthuysen, back home in Pretoria, venting her frustrations about her husband's cold, closed-off, emotionless manner, his complaints about his wife's unnecessary expenses on things such as towels and shampoo, and his insistence on precise household routines for her, adamant about her doing certain things on certain days at certain times her mother jean recalled later she wanted to discuss things but he would not he simply was closed off at times she wanted to scream yet melanie had fallen desperately in love with him only shortly after their relationship began and would do anything to try to please Walner. One diary entry of hers, written shortly after their marriage, reads I would never have thought I would have said it, but I am incredibly in love with my husband. Later entries in her diary recorded how she would make a point to wake up early just to be able to talk to him before he left for work and, as Melanie had still been a virgin when they'd met she'd even begun to read sex manuals to try and make up for her lack of sexual experience all to please her husband there are still things in our sex life i do not understand she confessed in one entry the couple had lived in both Kensal rise and hammersmith but eventually deciding upon a change of scenery wanting to live out of the rat race of london In 2005, Peter had applied for and landed a job as the head chef at the four-star Woodlands Park Hotel in Cobham, and the couple made the move here, renting number 14 Hamilton Avenue, a three-bedroom semi-detached in the village. But by the time they moved here, having been married by this time for four years, the Walners' marriage was on the verge of breaking down. They often at times slept in separate beds, the result of countless rows that occurred between the two, mainly caused by Melny's upset at Walner's controlling attitude towards her both at home and at work, for Melny had also joined the staff of Woodlands Park later that same year as food and beverages manager. Melny hadn't been working there too long when she confided in her mother that she feared her husband was having an affair with Maltese exchange student Lilia Fenech a 19 year old trainee at the hotel and her fears were right for walner was indeed involved in an affair with lilia which had begun long before melney had begun working there working closely together as well as living together proved a recipe for disaster and when Melnie caught her husband having a whispered conversation with lilia on the phone he ultimately confessed the affair to her Although she was devastated at this Melnie was still so much in love with her husband that she agreed to give their marriage a second try on the condition that he end the affair and attend marriage counselling sessions with her. Melnie also left the Woodland Park Hotel and joined the staff of the Thistle Hotel in Kensington Park in an attempt to give each other professional space. Lilia Fennec promptly returned to Malta and once she had Melnie believed that her marriage had turned a corner for the better she wrote in a diary shortly afterwards i'm going to fight for this marriage with every bone in my body i'm not willing to give up i have enough hope for us both ultimately i love this man and i'm so happy to do so much work to make this marriage work but by the following year walner had begun yet another affair this time with Emma Harrison, the Woodland Park Hotel's wedding planner, whom he'd become infatuated with. Their relationship was soon common knowledge at the hotel, and their colleagues believed that they were very much in love. And perhaps for Emma it was love without a hint of guilt, for reportedly, Walner had told her that he and his wife were separated, and that she lived in London. None of the other hotel staff inexplicably saw fit to tell Melanie otherwise, even though they must have known her. Meanwhile, on top of this, he was also still in secret contact with Lilia Fenech back in Malta, whilst to everyone else, including to her, he maintained the pretence of having a once again happy marriage with Melanie. They would take trips away together on Walner's motorcycle, they'd have nights out, and in August 2006, took an extended camping trip together up to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival the perfect happy couple to anyone looking in but any house of cards must come crashing down at some point and it was following this trip up to Scotland that Walner's carefully constructed one did what exactly the row was about this time is unclear whether it was over a different matter or perhaps Melny discovered a text or an email from either Lilia Fenwick or Emma Harrison cannot be ascertained, but it was a row that started on the day after the couple returned from Scotland, the 26th of August, even before they'd unpacked their camping gear from the car. As was usual practice following whenever they'd had a row, the couple then spent the night sleeping in separate rooms. But this was to be their very last row. At some point as his wife lay sleeping in their bedroom a sleeping mask upon her due to her need in total darkness to drift off to sleep Peter Walner crept downstairs from the spare bedroom collected some things from the kitchen and then silently mounted the stairs before pausing outside the bedroom door beyond which lay his wife. Silently pushing the door open he moved across the floor to where his sleeping wife lay on her side of the bed and stood for a second looking down at her, emotionless. Then, with all his might, with both hands, he brought down the heavy, cast-iron Lecrucet griddle pan that he'd collected from the kitchen on his wife's head, striking her at least three heavy blows to the face. Melny was most likely killed almost instantly, the heavy instrument causing catastrophic injuries to her. You don't even want to imagine, do you? Immediately thinking on his feet, Walner then grabbed the plastic Tesco carrier bag he'd fetched up and placed it around Melny's shattered head, securing it in an effort to stop the blood seeping everywhere. He then lifted his wife's body out of bed and carried her to the bathroom, placing her into the bath and using the shower attachment to wash the blood off her body. Heading downstairs and outside to the car, he then fetched the sleeping bag and the ground sheet of the couple's tent back inside the house, took them upstairs and manoeuvred Melny's body out of the bath and inside the sleeping bag before wrapping the ghastly bundle in the ground sheet and stashing it in the spare room. He spent the rest of the night working out his next move and by early the following morning, after he'd washed and changed the bed sheets, having scrubbed the mattress almost clean, and gathered all of his wife's belongings together, and placed them in a bag in the spare room, Walner had hit upon the answer. Using his laptop, he logged onto the Argos website, and purchased a large chest freezer, which he ordered to be delivered as soon as possible. Showing his cold, emotionless nature, the following day was Walner's 31st birthday, and that evening, he and Emma Harrison celebrated it with a meal out at an Italian restaurant in West Byfleet, with Walner behaving as if nothing had happened, even raising a glass as Emma toasted him with champagne. That night, she returned to the Walner house in Hamilton Avenue for the very first time, and they even had sex on the very mattress he'd less than a day before brutally killed his wife on. Walner having covered up some of the larger bloodstains that he couldn't scrub clean with fabric dye. Callous beyond belief that, isn't it? It wouldn't even seem human. And now, the unbelievably scheming mind of Peter Walmer came into full flow. Two days after Melanie's death, he sent both Melanie's mother and her brother text messages from his wife's phone, pretending to be her, and tell him both that she'd just been granted British citizenship, although he did this in English, ignorant of the fact that Melny would habitually text in Afrikaans to them. He then went on to make several purchases on Melny's Marks & Spencer's credit card, following him having faked a letter to her creditors from his wife, which claimed she was recuperating after having undergone throat surgery, and needed him to have conduct of her account eventually running up debts of some six thousand six hundred pounds on it and when the freezer he'd ordered from argos arrived a couple of days later it went immediately into the garden shed and onto the quick freeze setting where in the dead of that night Walner moved the sleeping bag from where it lay in the house complete with its contents and dumped his wife's body inside it Now, he'd already telephoned staff at Melanie's workplace, the Thistle Hotel, to report her as being sick, as she was due to return to work two days after she died. But sickness cannot last forever. You can't produce a doctor's note if a doctor can't examine you, and sooner or later, Walner must have known that he would be found out. He couldn't report Melanie as a missing person, for that would bring unwanted attention to his door, and so, a week after her death, he opted for what he considered the perfect way out, the most callous lie of all, and telephoned his wife's parents in South Africa, beginning the story he would maintain for the next three years. On the telephone, Walner broke the news to the the Oosthusens that he had heard a crash in the middle of the night which had woken him, and had come downstairs to find his wife collapsed on the floor. Although he'd immediately called for an ambulance, and arriving paramedics had battled to save her, it was in vain, claiming Melny had died from an aneurysm. Getting into the line now, he encouraged the distraught parents to come to the UK, and to of course even stay with him, but, with them in mind he claimed, he made them promise not to try and see Melny's body when they arrived. Jean Oosthuizen recalled later, he said the paramedics had hurt her whilst working on her and her face looked as though she'd been battered with a brick. He told us, Please, you must not have a look at Melanie. I've seen her. The whole of her face is black and blue. Try and remember her the way she was. To further keep Melanie's grieving parents from getting too drawn into the web of lies he was spinning, Walner also insisted that in the UK It was tradition for families not to attend cremations, telling them that he'd opted for this because Melanie could not donate her organs after death as she'd wished to because she'd once suffered from malaria. He even told them, Jean recalled later, he said we should look for a blue urn because Melanie liked the colour. He said he would fly out here with her ashes. Following her death, Melanie's younger brother Petrus even allowed Walner to stay with him and his family in Feltham in West London, a gesture to which Walnut later wrote the family a poorly spelt letter of thanks, saying I sometimes find things easier to say if you write them down. I don't know how you feel, but if you feel as bad as I do, well life's a bitch. I can't explain how angry I am about Melanie's death. I keep thinking about the life we thought we were going to have together. I felt it very hard to believe in anything right now. There is a good chance I will not stop in a church for the rest of my life. As far as I'm concerned, Melnie's life was one full of love and laughter. Can you imagine your sister standing in the corner, telling us all to pull ourselves together and get on with it? I can, and it makes me smile. After signing off, Walner added, Let's stick together. After helping Melny's parents search online to choose an urn for her ashes, some days later, Walner flew over to Pretoria for the internment ceremony, which was held on Melny's grandfather's farm. It was the ultimate act of bravado here, for as those gathered sobbed and grieved for the woman they'd loved and lost, her husband stayed strong, described later as, I quote, very calm, very collected. It was as if what was happening didn't happen to him it was as if he was a spectator and when it came to the internment walmer made a show of taking off his wedding ring and dropping it into the urn that contained melanie's ashes announcing i never believed in heaven but now i know i had heaven on earth with melanie but there of course had never been a cremation the decorative blue urn which was being interred on Melnie Walner's grandfather's farm, back home in her native South Africa, certainly contained ashes, but they were not Melny's remains. They were merely ashes from her husband's barbecue. There are no words, are there, eh? Absolutely sickening. Back in the UK, the Thistle Kensington Palace and Park Hotel, where Melny had worked, Suggested to Walner that they hold a memorial service at the Hotel fora, to which Walner enthusiastically agreed he took charge of decorating the function room at the hotel with Melanie's favorite white lilies, had touch-in memorial cards printed, and oversaw the forty to fifty people who attended, remembered by them for taking charge i quote like he was arranging a business meeting. Walner had even had the mindset and had taken the trouble to pen a touching poem to his late wife, which he'd had printed onto the invite to the memorial service, and which reads You brought me trust, you brought me tears, in one tender touch the pain disappears. I've been to the sword, seen it come and die. As we enter the dark, I beseech you to try. In prophecy all good things must end, so take care, my love, my friend. This yielding is fine, this promise rare. One day at a time, we've agreed to dare. Holding you tight with wide open arms, I'm letting you go, no stranger to harm. Go on, ride your way, do not break or bend. Just take care, my love, my friend. Yet throughout, despite the solemnity of the occasion, more than one person remarked later that they found his behaviour odd. That he was cold and emotionless unable to even shed a tear at his wife's passing one former colleague of Walner's Darren Bourne even later remarked he was his normal self easygoing i would never have known he'd lost his wife borders on the obscene doesn't it following this unbelievable display for there are no other words to describe it really, I couldn't think of anything else but unbelievable. Peter Walner began to carry on his life as normal, he maintained his relationship with Emma Harrison, and as I said, he even began another relationship at the same time, with Rebecca Jackson, his wife, whose body was still in the freezer in his garden shed, a mere memory, out of sight, out of mind. But his former in-laws still cast a spectre over him, as some months after the interment of Melanie, needing closure, Jean Usthozen had begun to ask Walner for her daughter's death certificate, which Walner tried to stall her about as much as possible. There was always some excuse, always the, okay, I'll send it tomorrow, which never came. And eventually, Walner promised Jean that he would bring the death certificate out with him on a visit to South Africa in late 2007. and then. The mysterious tragedy that always seemed to gravitate towards Peter Walmer whenever the pressure was on him struck once again, when he told Jean he'd had to cancel the trip at the very last moment because his father had suffered a fatal heart attack. This was a tale that brought him grace for the rest of that year, but in 2008 they were asking Walmer once again for the certificate, this time with Jean's husband even flying over to the UK to collect it in person from Walmer. However, he didn't make the meeting at the airport with Jean's husband, later explaining to Jean that the very same day he'd had to fly to Germany because his mother had died of a stroke. Melney's parents felt so sorry for Walmer with him losing both of his parents in the space of a year that they gave him space to grieve and again let the matter drop for the rest of that year. But in 2009, after they received an outstanding parking fine for their daughter, and needing her death certificate to deal with this, they decided to try again. I mean, it's not a hardship of a thing to do, is it? And yet, Walmer had dragged his heels for years. A friend of theirs helped them make inquiries about obtaining a copy of this certificate themselves from the UK, and upon them doing so, they found there was no record of Melny attending any hospital. By this time, Jean Oosthusen knew something was not right and out of excuses, no more relatives to have died Peter Walner simply stopped answering the telephone when he saw who was calling In fact, the last time the Oosthusens were to hear from Walner was on Boxing Day in 2008 She described later What I suspected, I don't know But the devil was poking My suspicions kept growing By two thousand and nine, also Emma Harrison had long since dumped Walmer for a man she'd met whilst on a backpacking trip in Australia, and he himself had fathered a child with Rebecca Jackson, both of whom he'd coldly cut off without a second thought, and he'd begun yet another relationship, this time with a police dog trainer named Claire Trickett, whilst also having resumed his previous relationship with Lilia Fennec, who had by that time returned to the uk from malta eventually dumping claire walner now freely invited lilia to move into hamilton avenue with him the only caveat being for her doing so really was that she was forbidden to go into the garden shed there's just an old freezer in there he told her and she thought nothing of this but Perhaps the possibility of Lillia discovering his ghastly secret preyed on his mind as 2009 went on, and so, ever thinking on his feet for a way out of things, Walner managed to persuade Lilia that perhaps the couple should leave Surrey and make a new life for themselves somewhere warmer, like Malta, for instance. Here, they could even take their relationship to the next level and get married, he suggested. Lillia accepted the idea at once, and whilst he began to apply for jobs over there, she began packing up the home that had once been Melanie's. Her father had flown over to stay near to the couple and to help them pack up the house, and by the start of the second week of May 2009, they were almost ready to leave for their new life. Walner had served his notice at work, a removals van had been hired for the following Friday, and there were just one or two last-minute loose ends to tie up including one very big one for peter walmer when lily was out of the house walmer moved the garden waste wheelie bin down to the garden shed and for possibly the first time in almost three years opened the chest freezer that was inside he removed the frozen solid body of his wife from inside it and placed her into the green bin covering it over with cat litter vegetation and other household rubbish he then moved it back to the front of the house a last gasp gamble that when the bins were collected and unloaded with a mechanical grab the powerful jaws of the compactor would forever remove any trace of his wife either crushing her remains beyond recognition or ensuring that she was buried at a landfill site never to be discovered he then cleaned the freezer out and sold it to a neighbour for £25 before that Friday the 15th of May, he, Lilia, and the couple's two Jack Russells and their Staffordshire Bull Terrier set off to begin their new life in Europe. Three weeks later, on the afternoon of Saturday the 6th of June 2009 the landlord of number 14 Hamilton Avenue, Roy Crabb was at the vacant property when he noticed an unmistakable stench emanating from the green bin and went to investigate as to whether someone in the street had been using the empty bin belonging to the property as an extra one for themselves following reports that council workers had been unable to empty it due to it being so heavy opening the lid he found the bin to be indeed full and almost immediately saw inside to his horror what he first believed was a disembodied human foot once his initial shock had subsided however Roy could make out what was an ankle attached to the foot and which continued down under the debris covering it a spokesperson for Surrey Police said later following Roy Crabbe's shaken call to them senior crime officers carefully emptied the bin to preserve forensic opportunities recovering the full intact body of a white woman believed to be in her thirties which had been surrounded by rubbish A murder investigation, Operation Nepal, was launched after the discovery of the remains, and the subsequent post-mortem examination revealed that the then unidentified woman had suffered a serious head injury, though due to the state of the body, could not establish a definite cause of death. But by the following Tuesday, dental records had identified the body as being that of one Melanie Walnut, and although the post-mortem could ascertain that her body was thought to have been in the bin for three weeks before it was found, it remained unclear when Melnie had actually died, because the post-mortem had also established that her body had been frozen for a considerable length of time, so much so that the remains of Melney's last meal, a Chinese takeaway, was still able to be identified from her stomach contents. The officer leading the inquiry Detective Chief Inspector Maria Woodall said in a statement following Melanie being identified We've received varying accounts from Melanie's family, friends and neighbours about her recent history. Some had thought she moved away from Surrey in the last few years and others believe she may have died in 2006. I'm now asking to hear from anyone we haven't yet spoken to who has seen Melanie since August 2006 or people who knew her well shortly before this date. Can you even imagine the shock and heartbreak that Melanie's family must have felt having news such as that broken to them? Beggars belief, doesn't it? So, the obvious person of interest to investigators, even before this statement was issued, was Peter Walmer, the previous occupant of 14 Hamilton Avenue and as early as the day after the discovery, a description of Walner had been issued publicly, a heavily built white male about six feet tall, with slightly receding brown cropped hair and brown eyes. The following day, detectives revealed details of the white Volkswagen Crafter van, registration RV58YDX, that they had discovered Walner had hired from a rental firm in Surrey on the 15th of May, and how two days later the vehicle was seen on road traffic cameras on the M25 in Kent, and later near docks at Dover, with two people inside. Credit card receipts had shown that Walner had bought two tickets for a cross channel ferry later the same evening, the seventeenth of May. Now, when the body was discovered, Peter Walner was hundreds of miles away at his lover's parents' home in Malta, But upon seeing the news of the discovery on satellite TV, Walner knew that his last gasp gamble had not worked and that he had no alternative but to return to the UK and hand himself in. He contacted Surrey police and told them that he was voluntarily coming back later that day upon him arranging flights, but not before he'd spun yet another deceit, saying that he was confused by the media reports and would like to know more. However, he did fly back and when he arrived back at Gatwick airport the next day he was met off the flight by arresting officers upon interview at Staines police station Walner told police that almost three years before he had fought with his wife during an argument and had only done so in self-defense because she had attacked him first with a rolling pin he also claimed that during the scuffle she'd stabbed him in the thigh with a steak knife and to defend himself he had struck her over the head with a cast iron griddle pan which had killed her panicking he had then moved the body into a sleeping bag before buying the chest freezer and some days later hiding the body inside it in the garden shed and had then created the web of lies that had gone on for the preceding three years which he claimed had spiraled out of his control But there was one very crucial detail that Walner had neglected to remember, one that cast serious doubts on his version of events. To try and stop his wife's blood dripping around the house, he'd pulled a Tesco carrier bag over her head and tied it around her neck. He'd also carefully removed his wife's wedding ring, which had his name and the date of their marriage inscribed on the inside. But most importantly, Where his bollocks story falls down flat is that he didn't remember that when he'd killed her his wife was still wearing a sleeping mask which she was still wearing underneath the carrier bag when she was discovered three years later and which showed he must have killed her as she lay in bed not in the midst of a heated argument as he'd claimed unless of course she'd attacked him blindfolded. Don't think so dickhead. at 4:10 p.m. on the afternoon of Friday the 12th of June 2009 33-year-old Peter Walner was charged with the murder of his wife Melanie at an unspecified time between August the 1st 2006 and June the 6th 2009 as well as preventing the lawful and decent burial of her body charges that he appeared before Woking magistrates accused of the following morning Walner wearing a blue crew neck jumper Sat with his head bowed and his arms crossed as the details of the charges were read out and spoke just once during the ten minute court hearing to give his name, his date of birth, and his address, which he gave as fourteen Hamilton Avenue, Cobham, the semi detached house where the body of his wife was found a week before. Magistrates immediately remanded him in custody. The woman he'd fathered the child with, Rebecca Jackson, was as we said at the start in court to see him charged and recalled later I didn't know what was real and what wasn't anymore my skin crawled as I remembered all his so-called grief when all along his wife's body was at the bottom of his garden Four days later when Lilia Fennec returned to the UK in support of her partner she too was arrested by police on suspicion of the murder of Melnie Walner and though she admitted having been involved in an affair with Walner when Melanie was still alive, detectives were soon convinced that she knew nothing about the murder. She was released on bail later the same day, and ultimately, this was cancelled a short time later, with no charges being brought against her. Peter Walner came to trial at the Old Bailey in May 2010, where he denied murdering his wife Melanie, but admitted her manslaughter before the jury of seven men and five women. But it was a real stretch for them to try to accept this plea, for the jury were to hear over the three-week trial, not only of the brutal way that he disposed of his wife, but the quite extraordinary life that he conducted in the aftermath of her death, in, aside from the elaborate and audacious web of lies that he span, the way he was able to con at least four women into believing that Melnie had died of natural causes presenting himself off as a grief-stricken widower to win their sympathy and affection in overlapping relationships without any one of them having any idea as to the other's existence on the opening day of his trial jurors were told how the body of Melanie Walman was found in a green wheelie bin outside their former home in June of the previous year three years after her death Bobby Cheamer QC, prosecuting, said The essence of the allegation is that on Sunday 27th of August he killed his wife with at least one deliberate blow using a heavy cast iron pan. He then ordered a freezer from Argos and when it arrived a few days later he put her body into the freezer. He left her there for nearly three years telling Melny's friends, family and work colleagues and anyone else who inquired about her that she died suddenly from natural causes for the next few months and years he spun tale after tale about the circumstances of the sudden death he played the part of the grieving husband convinced her employer to pay her last month's paycheck and he used her credit cards miss cheema added that when walmer had to move out of the house they'd once shared in 2009 he had sold the freezer and tried to dispose of the body of his wife in a large plastic wheelie bin He instructed neighbours to ensure the bins were emptied, but the refuse collectors refused to take that particular bin because it was too heavy, the jury heard. Miss Chima added, He no doubt hoped it would be mechanically emptied into a refuse lorry. Over the next few weeks of the trial, the jury heard chapter and verse the events of the tale that you've heard so far, and on Wednesday the twenty sixth of may, Walner himself took the stand. He gave pretty much the same story he had in a videotaped police interview that had been played to the jury, claiming that the Sunday in question, a row had begun between him and Melanie after she called him a bum for not picking up after himself. Then, Walner said he believed Melanie had found a text message from Emma Harrison on his mobile phone, and the couple started swearing at and insulting each other in the kitchen, with Melanie furious and accusing him of Having fun with one of his lovers before continuing, describing the kerfuffle downstairs. It went on for a while, screaming and shouting. At some stage, I don't know every word that's been said, I completely lost my rag. I remember her saying at that stage, If you're going to leave me, I'm going to ruin your life. My response to that was to punch her in the face. She fell backwards onto her backside. As the row continued downstairs, Walner admitted his wife had toppled over and had banged her head when she fell against a serving hatch. He said she then in retaliation cut him with a steak knife, which caused him to go up to the bedroom and which she followed him to, bursting into the room as he was trying to use his laptop and trying to strike him with a cast iron Lucretia pan, which Walner claimed had been left in the bedroom after he had earlier made a steak sandwich. He admitted they had, I quote, a roll around fight with scratching and biting and crap on the bed, before his wife then grabbed the griddle pan. Walner continued, All of a sudden that got into play, and the next thing I know is me turning around and something square and blue flying past my face. It was the pan. I remember grabbing it, getting it off her, and hitting her back. I'm convinced I hit her back a few times. That's what I remember. I know I hit her in the middle of the face. Of that, I'm pretty sure. She fell over backwards instantly. He then calmly demonstrated to the jury how he had struck his wife with a griddle pan, appearing more interested in the technicalities of the blow used than having any remorse for describing the death of a woman he'd once claimed to have loved at his hands. I wasn't sure if it was front hand or back hand," said Walmer as he waved the pan in the air oh yes following his blows he specified plural though he didn't claim how many walner claimed melanie then fell backwards and lay still on the mattress he went on there was copious amounts of blood lots of blood at that stage i held her up there was no pulse i really don't know how long i stayed there for i was completely freaked out i believed she was dead That is the most inexcusable part about it amongst many. I really do not know why. I just sat there thinking. My god what have I done. I remember running up and down the house pretty aimlessly. For a while I lost the plot. I can't possibly put into words what went on. I've been thinking about these five minutes for the last five years. And I just can't work it out. Walner claimed he had then showered and had put both his and Melnie's bloody clothing in a bin bag he continued I got her in the bathtub and started cleaning up the mess I remember sitting outside for a while, for about an hour staring at the house I grabbed one of the tarpaulin bits she put under the tent and put one of those bits on the carpet in the foyer between the bathroom and the bedroom I got the sleeping bag and put her in there I then manoeuvred her downstairs walner said he'd then put the body into the shed and cleared up the blood with bleach before drying the bloodied mattress in the bedroom with a fan heater and binning the bedding he told the court none of this makes any sense but the next morning i ordered a freezer from argos i put her in there and put the freezer on i hardly ever went into that shed again Walner said that he'd created the story that his wife had died suddenly from a brain aneurysm because he'd seen something similar happen on a television programme, but he soon began to give differing accounts. It was out of control. I could not keep one story straight, he told the court. Basically, I lost the plot. I have behaved like a scumbag. I didn't expect anything apart from winning a week or a month. Every day at that point in my life, I'd been well organised, well managed, everything had its routine. In those 15 seconds, everything ended. What I did there in those weeks and following weeks is not only completely inexcusable, but I can't even explain it to myself, and that's the hardest bit of it. Yes, in the end it caught up with me, but to have the balls, or whatever you call it, to be this disgusting, to phone up with a fake story, and to have caused that and added ten thousand to the pain afterwards this is not worth a shrug of the shoulders if you behave like the scum of the earth for three or four years and don't think about anybody else it doesn't make it go away or explain it there was parts of those years where i'd actually believed what i told people i didn't believe i had the body in the shed for certain amounts of time This was the closest Walner would ever come to anything resembling remorse and it stinks to me of falseness in an attempt to elicit sympathy from the jury, I thought. Challenged with the evidence of the sleeping mask in court that shattered his account of self-defence, Walner insisted Melanie had not been in bed when he attacked her but admitted it would have been impossible for her to have it over her eyes during their row, although he offered the explanation that she may have had it resting higher up on her head at the time and that it had slipped down then, almost casually, he said perhaps he'd even put the sleeping mask on her face after she died he simply couldn't remember emotionless, he looked over at the jury and said maybe I just didn't want to look at her face he told the jury that although afterwards he'd carried on relationships with other women he ultimately knew that what he'd done would never go away And in 2008, he'd even contemplated suicide when he was unable to carry on working, attempting to gas himself in his car. But he claimed, I quote, I didn't have the balls to do it. I always knew that there was no way of getting away with it. In a closing speech to the jury, Prosecutor Bobby Cheema described Walnut as arrogant, brazen and motivated by greed, saying, There is no getting away with it. At the core of this case is the brutality and ruthlessness of the killing. This was not some kind of spontaneous spur of the moment killing motivated by passion or a sudden loss of temper. Melanie Walner was murdered in cold blood. She didn't even have the opportunity to put up her hands to save herself. This was a senseless killing motivated by the greed of this man to make space for a different woman in his life. He is arrogant, brazen, and sees himself as a charmer, someone who can explain his way out of just about anything. He is completely convinced of his own abilities. In truth, he simply ignores the deeply flawed nature of his own personality, driven on and motivated by his wandering eye. On Friday the 4th of June 2010, Peter Walner was found unanimously guilty of murder by the jury at the Old Bailey showing no emotion as the verdict was announced but before he was sentenced his counsel Nicholas Griffiths QC told the court my client has asked me to say he sincerely apologizes to the family for what he recognizes as an awful thing he did and for the pain and hurt he caused sentencing Walner to life imprisonment presiding Mr Justice Stephen Kramer ordered him to serve a minimum tariff of 20 years in prison telling him I am satisfied she was either resting or sleeping on the mattress and she was defenceless against your attack over nearly three years you were engaged in a course of conduct in which amongst other things you brought a freezer for the purpose of hiding the body you lied to Melnie's family your work colleagues your own girlfriends and other friends as to how Melny had died. You lied about your own parents, saying they were seriously ill or had died, in order to elicit sympathy, so Melny's family did not ask for the death certificate. Eventually, you took Melny's body from the freezer, and dumped it in a wheelie bin, so that it might be dumped by the refuse collectors, and disposed of. You doubtless thought that the body, once hidden in the bin, would be loaded into a dust cart, compacted and disposed of, so that what you had done would never be discovered. Your acts have rightly been described as despicable and appalling. By your own actions and deceptions, and total breach of trust in your self-centred desire to escape responsibility for what you did, you have devastated Melny's family. I'm quite satisfied you are calculating and deceitful, both from the sequence of events on the day of the murder, right up until the trial. What you did over those many months was indeed appalling. Walner said nothing in response, and again showed no emotion as he was led away to begin his life sentence. Detective Superintendent Maria Woodall said, following the verdict, Peter Walner is a cold-blooded killer who brutally murdered his innocent wife and then went to extraordinary lengths to try and conceal his crime. He feigned grief at two memorial services and even travelled to South Africa to give Melny's family an urn full of fake ashes. His lack of remorse for what he did to Melanie knew no bounds and he told lie after lie in a heartless attempt to evade capture. I would like to pay tribute to the professionalism and expertise of the officers in my team who had to piece together the events surrounding Melny's death and expose Walner's deceit. Their tireless work ensured that he was brought to justice. Our thoughts and sympathies remain with the family of Melnie Walner who were wrongly led to believe that she died from natural causes thanks to the web of lies spun by Peter Walner. He added to their already immense grief by pleading not guilty to a murder and putting them through the ordeal of a trial. They have thankfully now seen justice done. Miss Walner's mother, Jean Oosthusen said on behalf of her family It has been a long and difficult time for us since Peter Walner told us that Melanie died on the 1st of September 2006. Many lies have been told to us during this time and we've had to deal with a lot of treachery and deceit since that date in 2006. While the discovery of Mel's body has been of huge public interest over the past year We need to try now and pick up the threads of our lives and carry on. For us, however, the pain is and always will be there. Our faith in the British legal system has today been vindicated and justice has prevailed. A prison sentence will never bring Melanie back and, in actual fact, robs another mother and father of their child. To Peter's mother, as a mother myself, my thoughts and prayers are with you i would have long since bloody disowned him wouldn't you peter walner remains in prison to this day leaving so many people behind him devastated in the wake of his actions and lies his elderly parents who walner claimed had both died to at least three different people were at the time both alive and well in germany and following his conviction were contacted by rebecca jackson who that Christmas sent them a card containing photographs of the granddaughter they most likely never knew they had, likely never even knowing she existed. But lying and hiding things was something Peter Walner had long become experienced in, he'd become polished at. Says Rebecca Jackson, I question everything Peter did and said while we were together, and I feel naive that I believed his lies but he was so convincing that I had no reason to suspect he was telling me anything other than the truth. I can't believe I slept in the bed where he killed his wife. I'm horrified and hope he rots in prison. I would have to say I hope the same thing. The tale of Peter Walner and his callous inhuman behavior is one that boggled my mind when I first came across it. I mean, Where exactly do you start with it? With which lie do you begin? Well logically it has to be lying about his wife's death. To tell her family, friends and colleagues so cruelly and callously that she died of a brain aneurysm is one thing but then the finer details that he added to it all this nonsense about that she had to be cremated and her family couldn't attend the cremation as that wasn't UK custom that's bad enough but to then fly out to South Africa with an urn filled with barbecue ashes and to go through the whole rigmarole of playing the grieving husband nonsense like dropping his wedding ring into the urn or to write and recite a heartfelt poem having decorated the room for a memorial and all to conceal your crimes and disposing of your wife's body out of sight out of mind like that kept in a frozen tomb callous despicable monstrous They don't even seem suitable enough words, really. I can think of several others to describe him, but I won't broadcast them here. I'll just leave that to your imagination. It was also a case that raised a couple of questions to me. First and foremost, why did he keep Melanie in there so long? Was it merely that as long as he knew she was in there, then there was no risk of her being discovered and a murder inquiry launched? Or had he buried his head in the sand and just chosen to ignore it, to put off a problem to deal with, to procrastinate about it, if you like? Or was it perhaps a final act of control on his behalf? I wondered also how the many lies and differing stories he told to people did not make anyone question his tales before Melanie's family did their own digging and it began to unravel, and why no one seriously questioned could misfortune fall on anyone that often in such a short space of time was Walner really that convincing for three years he must have been until his web of lies finally unraveled another thing that boggled my mind was the appeal that Walner had to so many women now there's a picture of him up on the show's instagram page right now have a look and see what you think personally I think he looks like something Jim Henson got fucked off with making halfway through. I really can't see the appeal of him myself. So ladies, if you can have a look, please help me out here. My heart went out to so many as a result of researching this tale. Firstly, Melanie's family and friends, who not only have had to come to terms with the tragic death of someone that they loved so deeply, but also the amount of sheer deception that came after a death. To learn of that and to try and deal with it, you can't even imagine how painful that must be, can you? I also extend my sympathy to Walner's own parents for having such a waste of skin as an offspring. To lie about both being dead as casually as that is callous beyond belief, isn't it? And also to Rebecca Jackson and her daughter Emma. I stress, Rebecca's daughter. Finding yourself pregnant, unplanned but welcomed, only for Walner to simply get tired of the relationship, regardless of whatever responsibility he had or support he was looked to for, and to do what he always did, to cowardly and callously lie, telling the most elaborate and tall stories, and then even abandoning these and simply choosing to ignore them both, cutting them off dead. One good thing I did discover whilst researching is that as Emma grew, She lost her early physical resemblance to Walnut and now is reportedly the image of her mother. One chink of light in an otherwise dark tale. Can you tell that I don't like this twat at all? Thankfully, it will be several more years before Peter Walnut is ever considered for release. Several years before his minimum tariff will expire. Any words of remorse he's ever expressed about the crime have been without true conviction, I believe except for those concerning himself I'm convinced that to this very day he remains a cold, psychopathic killer who simply cannot see beyond himself and I'm not overly convinced that 20 years is enough time for him to spend behind bars reflecting on his actions Surely, he's ruined enough people's lives already that he deserves to spend a great deal more of his behind bars. What do you think? I would be thrilled, as always, to hear your thoughts and feedback concerning the episode Web of Lies, which you can do so in the thread that is up for the purposes in the show's Facebook discussion group or through any of the show's social media links. You know, I don't mind where or how you get in touch with me. Hey you can even have a bit of a natter with me about it at CrimeCon this year, where myself and several other show hosts you may know and love will be appearing on Podcast Row over the weekend. And thrillingly, it isn't just London in June that CrimeCon is happening at this year, but the organisers are also taking the CrimeCon experience up to Glasgow in September, and I shall be up there for that as well. I am getting about a bit this year. It promises to be a great do up there, it really does. One that there's a link for you to get tickets to in the episode show notes. And if you come to get your tickets through it and you use the unique code ENTHUSIAST at checkout, you're getting a nice 10% discount off the total cost of them. Legend that is all what. I look forward to seeing some of you guys up there and it's looming up like Will Smith towards Chris Rock. With that, then, it brings the episode to a close. I hope Web of Lies has been a tale you found both interesting and informative. And over it all, I hope that your thoughts lay with Melanie, her family and loved ones, and all those affected by Walner's lies and actions. Spare not a second thought for that parasite at all. I shall be back very soon with yet more tales of dark deeds here on The Enthusiast, which I look forward to you joining me for. Until then, all that's left for me to say is that I've been. I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, thanks very much for joining me in the mog, and goodbye for now.